Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. What a blessed time we've had this morning. Thank you, music team, for arranging all those songs and also for those men who read and informed us a little bit about the Reformation. And we continue in line with that this morning, focusing on one of the great solas of the Reformation. All of them are great. One of my favorite aspects of church history is reading about the medieval period, the Reformation period. I encourage you to do the same. This morning marks the 504th, 504th, I sounded like Biden, (laughs) 504th anniversary of the Reformation. The past few years, what I've been doing is every uh, 31st of November or around about uh, October or around about, I will preach a Reformation uh, sermon. And this was our first Reformation service as such. Um, and I think the guys did actually uh, brilliant this morning. Really warmed my heart just to, to focus on uh, God in that way. This year we focus on sola gratia, which is Latin for grace alone. I felt like some of you ventured onto my sermon. Jerome, thank you. (laughs) But uh, it was just amazing how all of that which you've said this morning will be repeated in some shape or fashion. In this biblical truth of sola gratia, we affirm that it is God alone who says by means of grace alone through the avenue of faith alone, in the person of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, through the scriptures alone. Amen. On 31 October 1517, Martin Luther girded up his loins and with boldness walked to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, and nailed 95 theses against that door, which was then copied and then promoted amongst the people. Luther was burdened when he saw John Tetzel, I think his name was, engaging in the sales of indulgences. This is where saints were paying to get their dead saints out of purgatory. And Luther says, hang on. If we have to pay the Pope to deliver our saints from purgatory, why doesn't the Pope just out of love and grace do it by himself? The argument is, if he can do it, why doesn't he just do it? Why do we actually have to pay to have that happen? Which spawned a thought in Luther's mind. Is that actually found in Scripture? What he saw in his culture, Christian culture, was not aligning with what was found in Scripture. And this forced him to go to the Scriptures itself to seek what God has to say about salvation. Luther said, all of this is wrong. It is not found in Scripture. And he was driven to seek out what God has to say about salvation for himself. Where Luther especially was confronted in his search for what God has to say about salvation is the holiness and righteousness of God. He saw himself as an Augustinian monk being sinful and utterly removed from any capacity to please the Lord, even as a monk. And it burdened him. For how can a holy, righteous God accept a decrepit sinner such as I? He came to understand that God alone must act on behalf of man. And so the solas were spawned in the hearts of the reformers. This naturally led to a break with the Catholic Church. But for many Christians today, that is all that the Reformation is about. All we think about is this immediate break that took place between the Protestants and the Catholic Church. And it is not just about that split. Yes, there was a split and a necessary split. But it's not just about that. 
Why? Because the battle for the very veracity of the gospel was at stake. The truthfulness and the purity of God's word was at stake. And that is why they could not remain in the Catholic Church. Understand that Luther didn't want to break from the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church. He wanted to change their perspective of what it meant to be a Christian on God's basis. But the inevitable happened. They were forced to break ties with the church, the Catholic Church at that time. Why? Because they have moved from a biblical conviction of what God says about salvation itself, Scripture itself, God and Christ. And so the reformers broke away. This matters today. Why? Because there are many areas of influence that we have to navigate through that infringe upon the truthfulness of the gospel. Christ alone, by uh, um, through faith, through through grace alone, by uh, faith alone. Some evangelicals are going soft on the gospel, compromising the very truths that Christ died for, that the reformers fought for. The very gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ has been compromised and converted into a social message. That's why it matters. It's been bent to the ear of man, to a gospel that sinners love and want to hear. A gospel that at its heart has a social concern rather than a soulish concern. This is why a reminder on the key tenets of the solace or the reformation is absolutely essential. Two years ago I started looking at the, the cause of the reformation which is sola scriptura. They committed themselves to the truthfulness and sufficiency of God's word, which was the engine that drove the Reformation. Hilton was right that all of these solas, or soli in the plural, are interconnected. You cannot have the one without the other. If we compromise biblical truth, if we lose the grip on God's word then the, as the first and final authority, then at the heart of it, we will destroy the gospel. Any emendation or detraction from what God says in his word is heresy. That is why it matters. That is why it is important. The church in the medieval period had deviated from Scripture and thus devalued it. And one doctrine that suffered the most was the gospel. Now they believed that God was holy. They believed that Christ died for sins. They believed in the resurrection of both Jesus and future saints. But what you find amidst all that is a dead religion. How could they believe in God? How can they believe in Jesus Christ and still end up in a dead religion? How is that possible? Well, this religion dependent on the temporal human effort or work to effect eternal salvation. While they believed in Scripture, they did not believe in Scripture alone. While they believed in grace, they did not believe in grace alone. While they believed in faith, they did not believe in faith alone. While they believed in Christ, they did not believe in Christ alone. While they believed in God's glory, they did not believe that that is the only thing for which we are saved. Therefore, the reformers, who were later called the Protestants, the protesters, became known as the Protestants because they protested against the perversion of the gospel truth found in scripture. It was not a protest against the church. It was not taking up uh, pickets and saying, we protest. They weren't chanting anything. They were not walking out. They were fighting for the truth of the gospel. And when we do that, we align ourselves with the Protestants when we protest any kind of influence or change in the church. 
What the reformers were after was a wholesale return to the biblical understanding of the gospel as God gave it in Scripture. So why is this important? Well, this is why. Listen to the description of the gospel as found on one website. Quote, Social justice issues are at the center of the gospel. And that, as we look at the life of Jesus and his ministry, we seem engaged in social justice actions at every turn. Okay. He feeds the hungry. He he defends the oppressed. He stands up for women's rights. He loves the outcast and despised the rejected and the sinner and calls on the rich and the powerful to give their money to the poor and take uh, of the needs of, take up, I think it's supposed to say, take of the needs of the helpless, end quote. Really? That is at the heart of Jesus' ministry? That's a complete misunderstanding of kingdom dominion reign. What Jesus does through these miracles and taking care of the poor is saying that this is how it will be in my kingdom. On another website, it says this. Jesus was a, quote, social justice hero. (laughs) He boldly spoke up against inequality, helped the oppressed, condemned the oppressor, and embraced the alienated, end quote. More and more, on evangelical websites, we are finding this kind of refrain. This is the heart of the gospel. Social matters. Listen to one of the the Southern Baptist, actually this is the Southern Baptist Convention president, J.D. Greer, Greer. And he says this, Southern Baptists are to put the slogan, Black Lives Matter to Christian use. He explains, quote, Southern Baptists, we need to say it clearly, as a gospel issue, black lives matter. Of course, black lives matter. Our black brothers and sisters are made in the image of God, and I agree with that. Black lives matter because Jesus died for them, and that is true. But did you catch right in the middle, in the beginning there? As a gospel issue, black lives matter. Really. He clarified what he meant by that. Quote, we need to take a deep look at our police systems and structures and ask, what are we missing? Take note of this last line. Where are we missing the mark? End quote. What is that usually used of? Missing the mark of sin. And yet he's calling for police reform and a change in society as being a gospel issue. Sin has been replaced by social concern. This is why the reformation matters. Because when we are blind to what what is happening outside the world and how it influences the church outside in the world and how it influences the church of Jesus Christ, then we become influenced by culture and not Christ. This is the gospel today. To take up social concerns. From social justice to a gospel, to... to, uh, um, Social gospel and now BLM. All these concerns are found in the definition of what gospel means. The sad reality in all of these definitions, the true true gospel is not defined. This is why the Reformation matters. Because many of these evangelicals are proponents of sola scriptura, they will say yes to sola fide, yes to sola gratia, yes to solus Christus, yes to sola soli dia gloria. And then on a hair's breath, turn around and say, well, we also need this social matters. It matters because, take note of this, the slide into apostasy is quick. A deviation into heresy can be as quick as one word. 
A compromise of biblical gospel is just one addition or one detraction. That is how easy it is to go from saying yes to all these solas into a deviation from what God has given into scripture, in Scripture. For this reason, I want to affirm that Scripture tells us that there is only one way and there is only one gospel. And at the heart of this, this morning we'll see Isola Gratia, grace alone as the beating pulse of the gospel. Our passage is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, oh sorry, this is not of your own doing. I think the, the NASB says not of yourselves. It is a gift of God not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is one main thought in this section from 8 through to 10. You have been saved by grace through faith. That is it. That is the sub um, Substance of Paul's argument. Saved by grace through faith. If you walk away with that, you understand this message. Salvation comes through one way and no other way. There's two elements to the salvation. Grace and faith. And we'll look at all those terms later on. For outlining purposes, I've got three points. And my goal is to finish the sermon. Like it is to finish every sermon. But I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. And I will try my best, for those of you who are only here this morning, to finish the entirety of these three points. Number one, sola gratia, it's necessity. Number two, sola gratia, it's companion. And number three, sola gratia, it's outcome. It's necessity, it's companion, and it's outcome. That's what we will look at. This verse... Verse 8 through to 10 was fun, fundamental, was the fundamental launching pad for the defense of grace alone. What the reformers saw in this passage was God's independent work, acting by himself, independent of man, to save man because of the nature of man. So let's have a, look, a, a little closer look at this passage. Got to say that anybody who listened to all the readings this morning and especially the ones that related to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 through to 10. You've heard the pure, undiluted essence of the gospel. You cannot come to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 through to 10 and walk away thinking that you somehow contribute to your salvation in any way. That's impossible. Paul crushes every exalted human effort in this verse. What we see here is that salvation is not some dangling prize that God puts in front of people saying, grab at it, do your best to grab at it. And when you've got it, it is yours. No. Salvation is a thoroughly divine work that comes as a gift from God. How does Paul explain this? Take a look at the beginning of verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Pause there. Here we see its necessity. There are two components that we need to consider here. Firstly, grace is, an, is indip- indispensable because of what it intimates about God, what it tells us about God. If you look at the beginning of the verse, it starts with a little conjunction for. And I'm not a grammarian, I don't, I don't claim to be a grammarian, but I want you to take note of these little words because they are important. For by grace. So for year actually reaches back as it at the same time is explaining what what you've just spoken about is really is or really is. So it's explanatory, pointing back while at the same time provides further information of what this grace is. Why? Because of what God does in salvation. There's a connection. Look at verse 7. So that 
in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Pause there. The text literally reads in the beginning of verse 8 as follows. For by the grace. What grace? The grace that I just spoke about. This is called in, in um, uh, grammar, anaphoric, where the article is used to point back to something that has just been mentioned. So the, in the original, is saying this or that grace that I've just mentioned. What grace did he just mention? The grace in verse 7. The grace, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That mouthful is what he's talking about. He's identifying and specifying the specificity of that grace. And it can be translated as by this grace. This very grace that will be exhibited in kindness, that is exhibited in kindness toward us. The greatness of God's love, mercy, and uh, grace toward us. That is the grace that I am talking about. This grace that will be demonstrated by God in the coming ages, in the beginning of verse 7. The interesting thing here is, where he says the coming ages, it has the idea of duration and a continuation of times. If you, if you go to the ocean and you look at the waves, there's this ongoing flowing of waves. The one comes in and as that one dissipates, the other one is already on its heels, just coming in. And that is the words, the, the picture that, that Paul uses here. This ongoing flowing of time. For the ongoing periods of history that is still to come. Here's what God is going to do. In that years to come, He's going to put on display the greatness of His grace shown to us in Christ Jesus. When he saved us. So it's not about us. God is not putting us on display for everyone else to see. He's putting his grace on display in us. Does that make sense? God will display his kind intention. The kind intention which is demonstrated in grace. In one person. Take a look at verse 7. That he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. That's the only place where grace is found. Not in the church. Not in us. Not outside in the world. It is found in Christ. In other words, God will magnify His greatness and glory in the grace that is shown towards undeserving sinners in Christ Jesus. The emphasis is placed on God. Now the observational question that we must ask is, why is this grace needed? For by this grace that will be on display throughout eternity, by this grace you have been saved. Why do we need grace? Well, Paul kind of hints to this in the idea of you have been saved. And when we think of saved, we generally think of being saved unto salvation or eternity, right? But there's something more to it than that. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in sins and trespasses, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Did you catch that? That last phrase there? Were by nature children of wrath, Like the rest of mankind, what is he saying? All of us were in the same boat. What boat is that? To be under wrath. So when Paul says that by grace you have been saved, he's talking about God not only saving us unto glory, but from wrath. This provides a second reason why grace is indispensable. 
Firstly, because of what it tells us about God, that he will put himself on display in his grace in eternity. And secondly, because of the nature of mankind. Paul explains in chapter chapter 2, verse 1 through to 3, the state of humanity. The state of all mankind. Now it is true that this is applicable to all sinners. But there is a unique particular nuance and significance for the Ephesian church. Go to Acts chapter 19. And I'm glad it was read this morning. I said to my wife by providence because I'm actually going to reference this passage. It's an interesting read. If you take the time just to read Acts chapter 19, take note of the refrain, great is Artemis of, um, of the Ephesians. Relates to the deity that governed Ephesus. The idol that they worshipped and bowed down to. And if you know a little bit of history, you know that connected to this worship of Artemis was a number of immoral activity that took place, as with many cult practices. But we are here in chapter 19 in the context of Paul entering Ephesians. Look at verse um, Ephesus, look at verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So now we are found locally in Ephesus. What happened here? Paul started preaching the gospel and immediately there is an opposition to the gospel. And he found a a couple of Christians or believers there who have believed in Christ but have not received the baptism of the Spirit yet. And so at this stage you have a special outpouring to identify this group of saints who are now way out in the Bundus, away from Jerusalem. They too will be incorporated into the body of Jesus Christ. And as a sign of that, they too receive the sign of the tongues. And so they, and after this I don't believe there's any other speaking in tongues, but they too get the sign of tongues and prophecy. But what happens here is that there are, of these Jews and Gentiles, there are those who come to saving faith. Look at verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesians, both Jews and Greeks. That is important to note. There were Jews and Gentiles, Greeks, in the city of Ephesians. So when Paul writes to them, he's writing to a mixed audience because Jews and Gentiles get saved in the church. And it's interesting because he mentions Jews and Gentiles and how the separation between Jews and Gentiles have been taken away through Christ alone. Last part of the 17, and fear fell upon them all and and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, verse 18. Also, many of those who believe who sorry. Also, many of those who were now believers came, so after being saved, came, confessing and divulging their practices. Take note of verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. After being saved, they divulged the reality that, hey, we actually performed these practices and they brought their books, but take note of this, and they counted the value of them and found it, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Know what that is in today's uh, value? About 6.4 to 7.5 million dollars times 15. I don't do math. You can do the math for yourself. That is not cheap. Why is it so much? Because there's an implication here that the entire lives and livelihood was wrapped up in this cult. But you know what they were engaged in? Worshipping demons, dark magic, we would call it satanic activity today. They were following demons, worshipping idols, and they were influenced by these spirits in a way that 
control the entire lives and the sum total of these believers that came to them, that came to, sorry, came to saving faith, the sum total of the entire livelihood equaled about 7.5 on the high end million dollars. That's a lot of money. In other words, their lives existed in this cult. This is who they were on a daily basis. This is what they did on a daily basis. And when they came to Christ, everything that they were was thrown out of the door. Everything that they did before that was confessed and divulged and rejected. Now go back to Ephesians and keep that in mind. Who they were, what they did. Take note of how Paul words his description of them. Also the personal pronouns. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Don't all of us walk according to sins? That is true. Why doesn't he say we? Because he's got a specific point in mind. Take note. Following the course of this world, following the what? The prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. You were controlled by the devil. And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Take note the switch here. Among whom we all once lived. In other words, you were that. We were among that, but you were these people. You were controlled by the devil. You lived as people who demonstrated wickedness on a, on a level that we were not aware of or were not privy to. Among whom we all once lived, and now includes everybody else, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature, all of us, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Wow. You were devil worshippers, demon worshippers, and we all were in the same boat, following our own sinful desire. Think James chapter 1, passions leading to sin, leading to death. We're all in that same boat. That is the echo of that which James explains. By nature, children of wrath. While there is an implication for all of us here, we need to see the historical significance of the statement before we start applying it to us. There is a history that Paul knows about. These wicked people, demon worshippers, practicing, practicing magical dark arts, says, you know what God did? He saw you in your sin and need and delivered you from that power. How? Through the gospel. How? By grace, through faith. They had a connection to the demon world that we, or most of us probably don't, are not exposed to, we're not exposed to. And Paul says, man, you were dead. There was nothing in you that was able to reach out to God. You were dead. What, do, what does dead things do? Nothing, right? They stink. You have to bury them so that that smell doesn't permeate your house. Not that we, back in the day, um, when, when some of the older folk were still growing up, they used to keep dead bodies in the house for viewing, right? Your family member die, they would put it in a casket, but we remain in the house until the viewing is done. And sometimes it could take up to a week or two. Paul says, you were that dead corpse. We have a visual illustration, illustration given to us in Scripture. Who was dead and was brought to life besides Jesus? Lazarus. Lazarus was wrapped up, right? Now what did Lazarus do while being dead? Nothing. Nothing. Other than stink and starting to rot. He did nothing. The only thing he did was die. And Jesus comes to the foot of the grave. And what does he do? He speaks. He calls to him. And what happens? 
Lazarus comes to life. That is a picture of the power of the gospel that can change dead beings into life. That is what God does to all sinners that come to him. Deadness means in a, in, incapable of reaching out to God and saying, you must save me. That's why Paul uses this word, that word dead. There is nothing in you that God desires because you're stinking dead corpse. Putrefaction has taken place. You are, you are repulsive. Remember how Jews thought of dead things? They wouldn't even touch it. That's what it means. So for God to come and bring life out of death means it is a miracle and that's the point that you're not involved in. Why wrath? Because it is at the heart of the gospel. He's not just saying that we are saved unto something, but we are saved from something. We are saved for God and to God, by God, from God. Does that make sense? Why are we saved from God? Because the wrath of God will be poured out. And I know some of you are thinking, wait, wait, it has been poured out, right? Yes and no. It has been poured out for those who will believe. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish. But have eternal life in him. For, but 17, for God... Send not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. See the language of wrath and judgment? John chapter 3 explains the nature of God and why sin, uh, why the uh, salvation is necessary by God. Because you are currently under the judgment of God. Chapter 336, I believe it says, and whoever does not believe will remain under the wrath of God. Wait a minute. Hasn't it been poured out on Christ, in Christ? And on Christ, yes it has, for those who believe. But the wrath remains for those who refuse to believe. I'm not sure if you're getting it. The wrath of God will be poured out. But for those who come to Christ in faith, for them the wrath has been fully absorbed in Christ. Which means there is no ounce or drop of wrath reserved for you. But for those who refuse to come to Jesus Christ, to them, the fullness of that wrath still remains. That is why you need grace. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us, which is the church, for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is never apart from the reality and the awfulness and the beauty of God's righteousness expressed in his wrath. This is why we need grace to be saved. Because we are recipients of God's wrath. When Paul says here, by grace you have been saved, he brings all of that reality in. Because he's just mentioned it in point form from 1 through to 3. Now look at verse 4. Thank God that it doesn't end at 3. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Notice the change. Ow, ow, ow now. Because this is what God does for all saints. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Commentators are confused about why Paul adds that refrain at the end of verse uh, 5, saying it's parenthetical, it's out of place, it doesn't belong there. No, Paul has just described what grace is. Hence, the clause, by grace you have been saved, he's just 
told us what it means to be saved by grace. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His love with which He loved, even when we were dead in our sins, He made us alive by grace in Christ. In other words, all that God does is an act of grace. You are not saved by anything that you do, is what he's saying. In fact, he gets back to that in verse 8. There's tremendous beauty in the way that Paul describes the work of God here in salvation, and we don't have the time to get into all of that. Now, this may not surprise you, but Catholics will say amen to all that I've just said. They will say yes. We are saved by grace. We are saved because of Jesus Christ. We are saved uh, through faith. Uh, We agree fully with you. So then what is the problem? Well, the problem is that Catholics believe that grace must be cooperated with in order to make grace efficacious or effective. Listen to the Catholic Catechism in Article 1997. Quote, Grace is a participation in the life of God. It introduces us to the intimacy of the Trinitarian life. Take note of this. By baptism, the Christian participates in the grace of Christ. Hmm. He, the head of his own body. As an adopted son, he can henceforth call God Father in union with the only Son. He receives the life of the Spirit who breathes charity into him who, f- who forms the church. End quote. Did you catch it? You get um, grace as a means of participation with Christ through baptism by which you are saved. Listen to Paul. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. What the Catholics are explaining is not a gift. It's participation. When God gives you the gift of salvation, imagine it this way. When the father or the mother gives the child the gift, is there any participation in the buying of the gift from the child? Maybe nowadays, when you want a really expensive gift, you give a little bit of money towards your parents so that they can buy the gift for you. But that's not what I'm talking about. The gift itself. When the father or the mother gets the gift and they give it to the the child, the child receives it because they didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. They didn't merit it. But it's granted to them. It's given to them. That is what God says of grace. It's a gift. You don't get to participate in your own salvation. Grace is intimately connected to the reality that we were dead sinners. Dead sinners cannot reach out to God. God has to do something in their lives before that hand can go up towards God. God does not see that hand. You are not saved by the raising of your hand. You are not saved by walking down the aisle. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. If there is no confession of sin, there is no salvation from God's wrath. Grace without the cross, judgment, and the heart of God's holiness is cheap grace. But grace implies that you did not deserve it. It was not accomplished or achieved or merited by any means through anything that we have done. Grace implies that God sovereignly gifted to us grace. Paul shows man's desperate state and that God acted on our behalf. Grace emanates from God. Grace is a free, benevolent gift from God who freely chooses, independent of sinners, who freely chooses to save sinners for himself. One author says it this way, God took the purity of his grace and laid it on filthy sinners. That is true. 
So when Paul says that you have been saved by grace, he's saying that God is acting freely and independently by giving the gift of grace to undeserving, dead, and unredeeming, decrepit, wicked sinners. You don't deserve it. This is why we sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So we know we don't deserve it. This is important because today some... In some circles, grace is an abstract thing that is available to everybody. Have you ever heard of prevenient grace? The preparatory work of grace where we work with God in our salvation? Find that in Scripture. It's not. Grace, saving grace is never apart from Christ. It is never granted as a net of all people. There is a limitation here. And Paul says that it is shown to us in Christ. You can see it in the way that he explains how this grace is administered. Grace is necessary because of who we are and what it says about God. Now quickly, let me wrap up with these last two points. What is the companion of grace? Well, Paul tells us, by grace you have been saved through faith. There is a companion to grace. Grace and faith. In fact, you find them very closely connected in a lot of passages, especially in Pauline letters. By grace, through faith. What does it mean that you are saved by grace through faith? Well, there's not a lot of significance in the word saved. It just means to deliver, to keep safe. The significance lies in the way that Paul articulates his word. He takes a perfect form of the word and he says, this is how God saves. It's a past action that has continual Results. It's a past action that places you in a state of being continually saved for eternity. Now why then through faith if God does it by himself? Well, grace is the means through which we are saved. Faith is the channel through which the grace is applied to our lives. God saves us through the avenue of faith. Now let me explain this. When you have water running through a dry area, what does the water do? It carves away, right? It channels away through the the sand. That is what grace does. Grace carves away through the deadness and the putrefaction and the wickedness and the depravity that exists in the soul of man. Grace comes and opens up a pathway so that faith could be applied to the heart of the unbeliever at that time so that the unbeliever can become a believer by believing in Jesus Christ. Hence the words, by grace through faith. These two cannot work independent of each other. God provides both grace and faith in the process of salvation. In fact, take note of what he says at the end here. He says in verse 8, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. And here's the confusion. Like in most passages, there's a lot of confusion when we don't read what the author says. What does the this relate to? And some says, well, it is faith. So it is our faith. That this relates back to faith because faith is a last noun mentioned. Now let's read it with that in mind. By grace you have been saved uh, uh, through faith and this faith is not of your undoing. It is a gift of God. Makes kind of sense, right? But is faith the only thing that is mentioned? No. Grammatically actually it wouldn't fit because faith is feminine and the gift is neuter. Now, those of you who are smarter than I am, you know exactly what that means. In Greek, there has to be agreement. That doesn't agree. Grace, on the other hand, is masculine. And the gift is neuter. So he's not talking about grace or uh, faith. What about salvation then? Well, salvation is in a form, but it is not... Sorry, grace is also feminine. It is salvation that is masculine. Um, it is not in the same form as, as, as the gift. So then what is he talking about? This is one of those cases when the rules of grammar is broken to make a singular point. What is Paul's point? You have been saved, right? How are you saved? By grace, through faith. So what is his point? This is how you are saved as an entity, as a singular act. 
Salvation comes through one means grace and faith. So then he says, this gift, pointing back to the entirety of God's work in salvation, that includes grace and faith. This is a gift. In other words, your salvation, everything that is in your salvation is from God. It's a gift. So that means then, grace is not your work, faith is not your work. Your salvation is also not your work. The entirety of your salvation has been granted to you as a benevolent gift from God. That is why he says, this is a gift. Look how he qualifies this. And this is not of yourself or of your own doing. In other words, you didn't get to choose God. Not at all. You didn't get to contribute. Not at all. This is all of God. That is why the entirety of salvation is a gift. Now, what about works? Catholic Church says that the sacraments, keeping the sacraments, aids your salvation. And, and I'll read some of that on Sunday, uh, on Wednesday. Here's the thing. Paul crushes that idea in the last point. <clears throat> The outcome of sola gratia. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not by good works. For good works. God never saves by means of works. But he always saves unto works. There is no works in the equation of salvation. But salvation always results in Works. When good works is mentioned here, in Paul's mind, it, is all, it always has a moral aspect. Especially for these guys who were tremendously influenced by wickedness and, and cult um, immorality. In fact, take a look at chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to what? Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he explains what that walk is. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators um, as beloved children and walk in a love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, he connects the walk to your salvation. Because salvation results in how you live. He explains this walk in a variety of different ways throughout the rest of the book. The good works that he mentions, the walk that he mentions in in verse 10, take note of it again. He says at the end of verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That walk is explained throughout the rest of the book. In other words, you are saved to do the good things that God planned for you to do before you were even created. That's interesting. Because now Paul, from chapter 1 up to chapter 2, has just encompassed the entire scope of your salvation. Before you were born, God decreed your salvation. And then the outcome of that salvation, which is good works. So the entirety, both salvation and sanctification, is predetermined by God. Which means you add nothing to your salvation. Remember what Paul says in Philippians, for God is both at work to will and to work for his own good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's God that does it. We are saved by grace through faith. And faith is not a work We are not saved by means of works. Let me close with this. Catholic Church says, Baptism not only purifies us from all sins, but also makes us the neophyte, that is a new creature, an adopted son of God, and has become a partaker of the divine nature. What you note in Catholic uh, beliefs is that Christ is replaced with baptism. Take notice again in Article 1266, the Most Holy Trinity gives the baptized sanctifying grace. 
the grace of justification by means of baptism, enabling them to believe God because of the baptism, uh, to hope in him because of the baptism, and to love him because of the baptism through uh, the theological virtues, giving them the power to, that's because of the baptism, to live and act under the prompting of the Holy Spirit through the gifts of the Holy Spirit allowing them to grow because of the baptism in goodness through moral virtues. Thus, the whole organism of the Christian supernatural life has its roots in baptism. End quote. The entirety of the Christian life verges on this one thing if you were baptized. This is infant baptism, by the way. Hmm. Baptism replaces Christ. Baptism is the means through which we are justified according to them and sanctified. But scripture says it is by grace, through faith. There is no baptism in the process of salvation. The only baptism that takes place is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, they go as far to say that even if sin prevents um, the baptism from having its full effect, meaning that you don't live according to the baptism, you are still saved. Hmm. So as an infant, you are saved because of what the Spirit does in the infancy of your baptism. But even if you don't show any works, doesn't matter. Because you are saved because of the baptism. Scripture says that you are saved because of God's work, not the baptism. And as a result of God's work, there will be works. Here's the concern. If there's no works, there is no salvation. In the mid-1500s, Peter Gabriel began preaching Reformation truth in the reeds and thickets throughout Holland. It was announced that there would be a great service outside Amsterdam in, on July 14, 1566. Authorities shut the gates. But people swarmed the canals and forced their way out in the early hours of the morning when the milkmaids left for the fields. Thousands gathered. And Gabriel announced his text, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, and he preached for four hours. What are you complaining about? Four hours. Nobody minded in the coldness of the morning. They hadn't heard the gospel in thousands of years and they were hungry for his message and were willing to die for its truth. Gabriel's sermon that day helped establish the Reformation in Holland. When we say we believe in the five solas, when we say we believe that it is by scripture alone, um, through, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. If we say that that is true, then we are also saying that we will not budge when we are forced to. These people were shut out by the authorities and what did they do? Forget that. I'm going where the word is being preached. Think about that. Whenever we get to lockdown five again. They were willing to die because of the necessity of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such sacrifices we have seen throughout history. And especially during the Reformation where men, because of being baptized again, were drowned because they dared to oppose the heretical movement of the Catholic Church, where men who desired to translate the word of God into the common language were killed, where people who were told not to listen to the reformers were stoned and burned at the stake because they dared to, to, to willingly give up their lives for the gospel. Lord, we so easily forget this is not just about believing these truths, but being willing to put our lives on the stake for these truths. Because Christ himself died for these truths. 
Lord, grant us the boldness and the conviction that these men had when we are faced with similar problems. It is your work to save, and we thank you that you alone can save. And there are sinners amongst us. We ask that you, by your grace and through your faith, would change the lives and effect the salvation that you, have call- that you are calling them to. We pray that you would do your work for your glory, for your name, as we seek to honor you. For Christ's sake alone we pray. Amen.